Listener Production. In series four of the next billion seconds, you heard me tell the story of the marvelous new flight simulator from Microsoft. It's the one that quite literally has a model of the entire world inside of it. Not just the terrain, but all the buildings, all the roads, the streetlights, the weather, the aircraft in real time. They're flying around. Truth be told, there has never been a game like it. It is magnificent. Alpha Sierra X-ray Golf Sierra cleared for takeoff runway 24 departure to the north approved. But there's a price that you have to pay for that magnificence. It will bring any PC that it's running on to its knees. Doesn't matter how good the computer is, how new it is, how fast it is, how much memory it has. No. Because no matter how good your computer is, the world is bigger and more complex and richer and more densely textured than your computer can handle, than any computer can handle. Now, that's not necessarily a huge problem. And as we know, computers get better and faster all the time. So eventually they'll catch up, right? And just after Flight Simulator was released, there were a whole raft of product announcements tied to it from companies that make these things called GPUs. A GPU, or graphical processing unit, it's the card that goes into a PC and drives the display. It's the thing that draws all of those details onto the screen. And the more powerful the GPU, the faster it can draw those details, the more details it can draw. So everyone looked forward to those cards. And I already knew that I was going to upgrade. My computer's GPU, it is five years old. It was top of the line when I bought it, but it's, it was a bit pokey for 2020. And if I didn't get the upgrade, well, I'd never really get that incredibly detailed view of the earth and the weather and all of the rest. Now, these cards weren't cheap. The very top line card, it cost more than $2,000. Yet, even at that price, from the moment they were announced, they were sold out everywhere. You couldn't buy one for love or money. Oh, scalpers managed to buy a few and sold them on eBay for four or five times their purchase price because black markets always pop up when the commercial market fails. But why did the commercial market fail? And why is it nearly a year later, I still haven't been able to buy a new GPU? Today, Mark Pesci here, and the coming next billion seconds are the most important in history because everything is getting smarter and smarter and smarter. Everything is getting connected, getting intelligent, and getting capable. The root of those capabilities come from integrated circuits, chips. They've become indispensable to everything we make. Almost overnight, they've become one of the most important elements in the global economy. So this isn't a story about chips. This is a story about how chips came to run the world. A story we call geopolitics. So let's back up here. Because I promise you, this really isn't a story about me whinging about not being able to buy a new graphics card. It's about why. 
And that why, that why is huge because just at the level that many listeners may be aware of, it's not only difficult to impossible to upgrade a PC, it's also very hard to buy Sony's new PlayStation 5 or the new Xbox Series X. And the thing all of these devices have in common is that they're all sophisticated electronics, all stuff with latest generation computer chips. Now, of course, you'd expect a computer or a video game console to be stuffed with chips, but these days, actually, pretty much everything else is too. So that's why even some of the major auto manufacturers have had to slow down or shut down their production lines over the last few months. It's not because they're short of steel or plastic or rubber. It's because a modern car is chock full of chips. They handle the ignition and the anti-lock brakes and the dashboard and the ventilation and on and on and on. There are chips everywhere in a vehicle. And if you can't get your chips, you can't make a car. That's how serious this is. Now, why can't the car makers and the video console makers and, hey, even me, why can't we get our chips? Well, there's a shortage of them. There's a shortage of the kind that the world has never seen before. It's a shortage that is both fundamental, affecting pretty much all of the chips, and it looks to be getting worse. Now, it is not that we have stopped manufacturing chips, hardly. Though the pandemic did see some interruptions in the supply chains that feed chip manufacturers, all of those are more or less ironed out now. And yes, one or two chip plants caught fire over the last year. But again, the industry has always taken that sort of thing in stride. But never before have we seen this kind of shortage in chips. So what's going on? Well, for one thing, the world turned on a dime from working in offices to working from home, and we did that to keep the pandemic under control. And that created an enormous demand for new laptops and webcams and all of the other sorts of tools that people need to continue to do their work from wherever they are. So after years of just gentle, slow declines, the number of new PCs in 2020, it ticked way, way, way up. That created a lot of demand for chips. But that's only part of the story. Because the biggest story is that as more and more chips go into more and more things, there's simply been an accelerating demand for chips. A demand that the industry saw coming, but basically didn't prepare for. They didn't make the investments they needed in new production facilities. Now, that's not really surprising. A state-of-the-art chip plant, it starts at 10 billion U.S. dollars. And there are only a handful of companies that have that kind of capital to invest, even when they know there's going to be a market for everything they sell, even if they have customers signed up for the next decade eager to get chips. So some of this story is really just about a failure in business planning, and some of it, well, we'll come to that later in this series. The thing to know here is that this chip shortage, even the most optimistic forecasts, see it stretching out into 2022. Now, the car makers are expected to get their chips later on in 2021, so those car production lines will start back up. But no one really sees this chip shortage clearing up fundamentally until at least 2025. So at this moment in time, basically, all of the advanced manufacturing capacity on planet Earth is currently imperiled by a lack of chips. And this has gotten so bad 
that the American automobile industry went to President Biden to beg him to do something about it. But what can he do? Even the president can't wave a magic wand and make that shortage disappear. This is a fundamental structural problem across the entire industry. Yes, President Biden could ask Congress for billions, and he has, because he knows that these companies will need help to build those new plants. But even if Congress gets around to allocating that money, and that's no short thing, even then, it will take five years to get those plants up and running and making chips. So we're painted into a bit of a corner here. And there isn't really any easy way out. We're just going to have to learn how to live with this new normal of chip shortages. In a moment, we'll take a look at how we got into this position, how chips became indispensable in everything. We're back on the next billion seconds looking at the global shortage in chips. Now, before we go deeper in, We've got to zoom out a bit. I've been using the word chips, and I really mean semiconductor integrated circuits, which is quite a mouthful. It's no wonder we call them computer chips. But to understand how we got here, we've got to unroll the meanings of these big words. And we're going to start with semiconductors. Now, there are elements that you're familiar with. These are the elements on the periodic table, the chemical elements, metals like copper and silver and gold and aluminum they all conduct electricity quite easily. And for that reason, metals are known as conductors. There are other elements like carbon or phosphorus or sulfur. They won't conduct electricity. And for that reason, they're known as insulators because they insulate against the flow of electricity. And then there are some elements that sit somewhere between conductors and insulators. Things like, you guessed it, silicon, and germanium, and arsenic, there are several others. Because they sit somewhere between conductors and insulators, they're known as semiconductors. The first semiconductor to come into common use, this is a hundred years ago, was a crystal known as galena, lead sulfide. Now, lead is a metal. It's a conductor. It's not a great one, but it's good enough. Sulfur is an insulator, and the right combination of conductor and insulator it can also create a semiconductor. And when you connect galena to a little bit of metal wire, it creates a basic electronic circuit known as a diode. Here's what a diode does. A diode is kind of like a one-way gate. It lets electrical current flow in one direction, but not in reverse. It's like a conveyor belt for electrical currents that only goes in one direction. So from one direction, a diode looks like it's a conductor of electricity. From the other direction, it looks like it's an insulator, which is pretty neat. And that diode, that crystal diode, it formed one of the very few components in the very first generation of AM radios. They were known as crystal radios after the Galena crystal. It took another quarter century to get to the next big leap in semiconductors, and this one was a whopper. Now, a diode is always open in one direction. It's always closed in the other. What if you could make that diode selectively open or close? In other words, you'd have a valve that would let you open or close an electrical current on request, and that might be really useful. 
And a lot of work went into creating this new thing, most particularly at Bell Labs. Bell Labs was the most advanced lab facility in the United States. It was the research arm of AT&T, which was America's national telephone monopoly. And they were trying to solve this big problem. They were trying to solve it because so many Americans were getting telephones installed in their homes that they had predicted that very soon the world would run out of copper wiring to carry all of those phone calls. Bell Labs was looking for ways to squeeze as many phone calls as it could on a single piece of wire, and that would then rescue the phone network from its own popularity. To do that, they needed this electronic valve. So in December of 1947, John Bardeen, Walter Bertain, and William Shockley, after years of trial and error, they figured out how to alter a diode in just the right way to turn it into a valve. And this, they named this a transistor. That's a compound word for transconductance, means it's acting as a conductor, and varista, meaning it could vary how it acted as a conductor. And so, in December of 1947, the world got the switch that it needed to save the telephone network and do a lot more besides. Now, this is where personal politics shows up in our story. William Shockley had been working toward a transistor for many years. He always represented himself as the father of the transistor, and the world believed him. But when the Nobel Prize was awarded just nine years later for the invention of the transistor, it went to Bardeen, Bertain, and Shockley equally. And Bell Labs, they also credit Bardeen, Bertain, and Shockley in equal measure for their contributions. But from the moment the transistor existed, Shockley did his best to get Bardeen and Bretagne away from it. He made it easier for them to do anything but work with him on the transistor. So within just a few years, Shockley became the face of the transistor, a nifty little semiconductor gadget that had what seemed like an infinite number of uses. And it wasn't long until the transistor found its way into radios. Radios were great big things that had to be powered by plugging into mains electricity. Transistor radios could be powered from small 9-volt transistor batteries. And the transistor radio, when you think about it, that's actually it's one of the forerunners of the smartphone because it was small, it was light, it ran for hours on a single battery, and it brought the world to the palm of your hand. Now, barely a decade after the transistor was invented, IBM had introduced its Model 7070, the first computer built entirely out of transistors. It used a lot less power than previous computers, was far more reliable than them, and it was the forerunner to every single computer that we use today. Now, by this point, Shockley had left Bell Labs and he'd founded a startup, the Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory, to invent and manufacture all sorts of variations on the transistor. Bell Labs, it was located in New Jersey. Shockley founded his firm on the West Coast in a little town about 40 kilometers south of San Francisco known as Mountain View, a town that today is at the heart of Silicon Valley because Shockley set up shop there. 
Shockley had already demonstrated that he was prepared to give the co-inventors of the transistor a brush off. And that, that behavior set the tone for the Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory. He got a whole bunch of bright kids just out of college to work for him. But he wasn't easy to work with. He was arrogant. He was dictatorial. And he was avowedly white supremacist. Now, that sounds really bad today. Really, really bad. Back in the 1950s, a fair few Americans shared Shockley's views. It's just that none of them had won Nobel Prizes. None of them had co-invented one of the most important technologies of the 20th and 21st centuries. It is not okay that Shockley was racist. At the time, he didn't really stand out for that. Later on, well... That's a different story because a civil rights movement came along and American attitudes about race changed, but not Shockley's. And that came to a head when Hugh Hefner, now Hugh Hefner was the founder and publisher and editor of Playboy magazine. This is back in the days when people really did read Playboy for the articles. He scored an interview with William Shockley and Hefner sent a renowned reporter to do the interview a reporter who just happened to be African-American. And we will link to that interview on our website so you can read for yourself how Shockley tries to justify his racism to an African-American. And how, well, one of the biggest inventions in history, it has a less than perfect past. But in truth, long before that Playboy interview, Shockley had already paid a big price for his misbehavior because Shockley had assembled a unique team at his semiconductor laboratories. Folks who were not only as bright as he was, but probably brighter. And they weren't having a lick of it. Just a few months after the doors opened at Shockley Semiconductor Labs, eight of the top engineers went over Shockley's head to Arnold Beckman, who had given Shockley the resources to set up his firm, they demanded Shockley be replaced. It didn't happen. After all, Shockley was the father of the transistor and the winner of the Nobel Prize. You don't fire him. Fine, they said. We'll take our toys elsewhere. So they went off to a camera company by the name of Fairchild and got the camera company to bankroll their Fairchild Semiconductor Company. Now, Shockley claimed this traitorous eight, as they became known in Silicon Valley legend, that this traitorous eight would never amount to anything. Shockley couldn't have been more wrong. The traitorous eight, they went on to change the world. In the next episode of Geopolitics, we'll trace the path from the transistor to the integrated circuit and how it led to an alliance that made Bill Gates the richest person the world had ever seen. That's on the next episode of Geopolitics. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. For more about the topics in our show, in particular that notorious Playboy interview with William Shockley, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.